I'm honored to be here to be uh, speaking this morning, and uh, it's an honor to have been asked to uh, do so, and uh, that the brethren here in the uh, church here has the confidence in me to uh, speak the truth this morning. I'm thankful for the uh, prayer that was led. Um, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about evangelism, and uh, in the prayer it was mentioned that uh, to be with Frank and his efforts in evangelism, and he also uh, mentioned to help us that we will all do our part uh, with evangelism, and uh, I think that's the key today. I think we all have a part. What that part is might be different from uh, what somebody else's is, but we all need to be growing and uh, being able to do more for the Lord. You know, it seems oftentimes Christians get this idea that uh, those evangelists or those preachers will uh, do the job uh, for them, that they don't really have a part in it, and they can just go about their own lives and doing what they think they need to do, and they completely miss uh, the ball here, and they uh, forget that we are to be teaching the gospel to others. Maybe they've tried teaching it to others, and they've been rejected, and they've started uh, to lose heart, and they think that uh, maybe uh, they're just there's just nobody out there anymore that wants to hear the gospel. But I still believe what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 and 16 to be true. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I think one of the biggest problems today regarding evangelism is the lack of motivation. It seems that many Christians seem to lack the motivation to teach others. Time goes by, days go by, those days turn into months, those months soon turn into years, and before we know it, we're 10, 15, maybe 20 years down the road, and we've done little to nothing to share the gospel. But rather than Christians being troubled by this fact, many just attain a state of complacency. You know, complacency can be a scary thing. I'd like to tell a little story real quick about a coworker of mine. Uh, first, I want to kind of tell you what I do. I work for a chemical company, and uh, we sell chemicals to food processing plants. Uh, we advise them on how they should wash their equipment, how uh, they should uh, program their uh, computers for their equipment to uh, clean properly. We do all sorts of things, but the number one thing uh, that I do for my job is I make sure that the plant that I work at never runs out of chemicals. It's the biggest thing. It's one of the easiest things. I don't have to put a lot of time into it, but if you forget uh, what, you're, uh, what you have and you run them out of chemicals, they're not too happy. Uh, they can't wash their equipment after a certain amount of hours that they run. They can't run anymore. So if they're out of chemicals, they can't run. If they can't run, they don't make money, and the plant's not very happy. Well, this coworker of mine, he's more of a service guy and he uh, rebuilds the pumps that transfer the chemicals to the equipment. Same thing with him. His biggest job is to make sure we never run out of pumps. They, same thing. If they can't get the chemical to the equipment, they can't run. So one day, first I want to say too that I used to do this guy's job when I first started with the company. So I know exactly what his job is. One day I walked into the maintenance shop there at work and I noticed that there was two chemical pumps under this table where they have their coffee and stuff. And I know uh, that whenever we come into the plant, uh, if there was any pumps that need to be rebuilt, we rebuilt them, tested them, put, it, put them back 
on the shelf. Well, I saw these two pumps, so I told this coworker of mine, I told him, hey, you know, make, make sure you rebuild those pumps. He said, you know, I can't do it today, but I'll be back in a couple days and I'll do it. I said, okay, that's fine. So that day came and went. A couple weeks went by and I walked into the shop there and I noticed that there's about five pumps sitting there. And I told him again, I said, hey, you gotta make sure you rebuild those pumps. He said, okay, I'll do it. Some more time went by and it got to where I was walking into that shop, seeing these pumps there, and it was like just the norm. It was just normal seeing these pumps there. I didn't even think about it until one day I walked in and I noticed there was like 10 pumps sitting in this maintenance shop. There were some under this table, some on the workbench, some outside. So I went and I talked to him. Now this guy is, I consider him a friend. We talk a lot, so we're, we're pretty close. I told him, I said, hey, listen, I'm gonna have to send you an email because I don't want to get in trouble for something that you're not doing. I want to have a record that you know you should have done this. He said, okay, that's fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuild them. Well, a couple days later, I get a call about 6 in the morning uh, from the manager at the plant saying that they run out of pumps. So I live pretty close to the plant, and I drove down there real quick. On the way, I called my coworker, asked him what he's doing. He said, I'm going to Visalia. I said, no, you need to come to Fresno. Uh, you need to come rebuild these pumps. They ran out of pumps. Well, I got there, and I pieced something together. Got it going, got them going. The managers were fine, everything had kind of calmed down. He got there and I could tell he was scared when he got there. Probably thought he was gonna lose his job. And later in the day, once everything had calmed down, I was talking to him as he was rebuilding those pumps and he said, man, when you called me, he said, I was scared. He said, my heart sank and I had this knot in my stomach and I felt hot all over my body. He said, I knew exactly what was going on. I knew we ran out of pumps. You know, I, I know that feeling that he's talking about. It's that feeling of regret that you didn't do something that you should have done and you know it's too late. You know, there's probably a better illustration for fear that I could use. There's some parents in the audience. Probably the most scary thing that you can think of is getting a call in the middle of the night while your child is gone and you know that something is wrong. You get that same feeling. There's one thing that I think, though, that would scare me and I'm sure it would scare you more than anything. That is to get the call in the middle of the night, or startled during the middle of the day by the sound of trumpets on the day of judgment, knowing that you didn't do everything that you could for the Lord. Complacency can be a scary thing. Motivation is needed today for evangelism. <clears throat> With proper motivation, a Christian will seek to save the lost. Even if they don't know how, they won't rest until they're doing something that might lead others to Christ. What was it that motivated Jesus to save the lost? What prompted him to come to the, this earth? Why did he go from city to city with the gospel of the kingdom? And why did he endure the shame and pain of dying on the cross? You know, oftentimes I have to sit back and I think about the things that Christ did, the shame that he went through, the horrible death that he went through for me and my sins, and I have to think about what have I done for the Lord? And shamefully, sometimes I sit back and I think of all the opportunities that I've had, the opportunities that have fallen in my lap and I haven't done anything about it. Very little going out and teaching and finding people that want to hear the gospel. And I wonder what sometimes, what is it that keeps me from doing it? What is it that keeps Christians from being able to teach others? What is it uh, that uh, scares us? Why are we scared? You know, I think that oftentimes uh, we think that maybe 
people reject it. We're scared of rejection. We think that people uh, just don't want to hear it. Maybe we think that, oh, they'll embarrass us and think we're weird. And it's kind of uh, silly to think that way, isn't it? It's kind of silly to think that that's the worst thing that can happen. And that's what's keeping us from do it, from doing it. Maybe we think that, oh, we have time. That, oh, well, you know, whenever I'm older and I'm retired, I have more time. I'll start doing things like that. That's the biggest lie that the devil can tell you today. That's the biggest lie that he does tell you that we have time. We don't know we have time. We don't have time. The time is now. The church needs men and women with courage today. So what motivated Jesus to save the lost? There are several factors that could be listed. One reason was he had a strong sense of purpose to do his father's will. John 6 and 38 says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Another reason was to share the father's love in John 15 and 9. It says, As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. Another reason was the potential condemnation of those that he sought to save in which he warned Matthew 10 and 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There was also the joy that was set before him, helping him to endure the cross. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the throne of God. No, each of these factors can help to motivate us as well today. But there's one factor which is mentioned in the text of our study today. Our text comes from Matthew, the ninth chapter, or read verses 35 through 38. It says there, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Notice what verse 36 says. 36 says it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Jesus had compassion for the lost. Maybe the lack thereof could explain why many Christians don't actively seek to save others today. To help answer this question, let's take a look at Jesus' compassion for the lost. We know that Jesus had compassion for the lost. It's mentioned seven times throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He was moved with compassion when he saw people that were weary and scattered, like sheep without a shepherd, suffering from diseases, demon possession, and hunger. His compassion moved him to heal the sick, the demon-possessed, raise the dead, and to feed the hungry, and to personally teach those that were in need of a shepherd. Mark 6 and 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were a sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. His compassion moved him to call upon his disciples to pray for more labors. Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38 says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus was moved by compassion to send out his disciples as laborers. In Matthew 10, just following our text, verses 1 through 7, he sends them out to king, uh, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was truly moved 
by compassion for the lost. He was motivated. He did what he could to meet the needs of the lost, especially their need for salvation. We want to take a few moments this morning to look at our compassion for those that are lost. Do we have compassion for the lost today? Do we look at those that are lost just as Christ did? Do we look at them as a sheep without a shepherd? There's a fact today that when we look around, we see so many that are lost, we kind of get overwhelmed and we start to think, where do we even start? You know, I know what feeling overwhelmed is like. Uh, growing up, I lived uh, uh, from the time I was born till I was probably about 14, 15, I shared a room with Jace. And me and Jace were two of the messiest kids you've ever met. I mean, it was harder to get our across our room sometimes than it was to hop across like a creek over the rocks. It was bad sometimes. You know, sooner or later, our mom or dad would walk by and they'd see that room and we'd hear them say our name. <clears throat> you know, it's a little different today. It seems like a lot of times I see uh, little kids that their parents will say their name and say it four or five times until they get their attention. Sometimes they have to stop them to get their attention. I remember when I was a kid, when my parents said my name, I knew I was paying attention when they were calling for me. I knew something was up. So we go down. They'd tell us, get in the room, clean it. Don't come out until it's clean. Sometimes I'd go into that room, and I would sit there for, it seemed like, 15 to 30 minutes sometimes, just overwhelmed, not even knowing where to start. There was so much stuff, I didn't even know where to start cleaning. And, you know, it would always start by motivation, the motivation was if I could finish this, I could go back out and do whatever I was doing. And if I, it always started, the start of the cleaning started when I would pick one thing up and I would put it somewhere. I'd put it where it needed to go, one thing at a time. And so it can be with our Christian lives and evangelizing today. If you've started something with somebody or you know somebody that's interested, work on them first. Don't be Overwhelmed. If it's something you've started something already with them, don't let that die. Keep talking to them. The Bible says in Luke 15 and 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Do we look at those who are lost as souls just as we are? Do we look at them as one who God loves and were made in his image? The Bible says in 2 Peter 3 and 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do we look at those who are lost as one that can be forgiven of their sins and saved eternally? <laughs> Romans 5 and 8 says, But God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Are we moved today when we see multitudes of people who are without Christ? When we see individuals who are lost in sin? Can we truly say today that we have compassion for those who are lost? If we made no effort to teach someone the gospel or little effort to even get to know those who are lost? What have you done in the past year for the lost? The answer to this question will reveal much about our compassion. Are you pleased with the answer this morning? If you're not, then how can you develop 
compassion. Does your inactivity suggest that there is a lack of compassion? Is it evident that you haven't been as concerned for the loss as you should be? So what can we do to develop compassion? Compassion for lost souls can be developed first by letting God teach us how to love. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9 says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You know, we oftentimes sing that song, If That Isn't Love, which paints a perfect picture of what Christ gave up for us. God teaches us through his example of his son. And by frequent contemplation of God's love for us, the more we will begin to love others. The word of God is essential for us today for developing compassion. Also, we need to spend time around people. To love people, we need to get to know them. The more we know, become to know, uh, come to know people, the more likely we'll be concerned about their well-being. You know, when I was growing up, uh, before I was the youngest of the grandchildren on my dad's side, so uh, before I started school, my grandpa Richard used to pick me up, it seemed like, all the time during the week. He would pick me up and take me around, go on errands with him, and uh, sometimes we'd go back to his house and hang out in his study or whatever it might have been. Maybe we'd go to McDonald's, he'd get me ice cream, but I remember spending a lot of time with him. And, you know, I remember him talking to a lot of people whenever we were uh, out running errands. And I thought, back then, I thought, well, Grandpa's just old. Everybody knows who Grandpa is. He's been around for so long. That wasn't the case. Uh, he was doing this. He had a purpose when he went out into the world. He had a purpose to get to know people, to talk to them. There was multiple times that I would see uh, him uh, contact somebody about uh, having a Bible study or whatever it may have been with them just from going out and being around people in the world. We need to be aware of becoming isolated from people. It's easy for us to do as Christians oftentimes. Uh, it seems like we don't have a lot in common with those who are living immorally. Maybe we go to work and we kind of do our own thing. We uh, don't get to really talk to people or uh, talk to them as much as we should. We get to need to get to know people. Don't, we don't need to uh, do the things that they're doing. Uh, we can talk to them in a different type of setting, but we need to get to know these people to start caring for them. Certain things can keep us uh, uh, away from talking to people. I will be the first to admit that my phone can be a distraction sometimes. Remember, Jesus was often moved by compassion when he was among the multitudes and individuals. So how should compassion move us today? It should move us to do whatever we can do, such as to teach others. Remember Mark 6 and 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. <clears throat> Maybe you're unable to teach today. Then compassion should motivate us to learn to teach others. Hebrews 5 and 12 says, For so by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. 1 Peter 3 and 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. That one can be a little scary, can it? How many times have you been asked 
about the hope that's in you and not been able to give a defense. We need to continue to study the scriptures to be able to teach others. Compassion should also move us to make arrangements for others to be taught. Philip did this for Nathaniel in John 1, verses 45 and 46. Also, Cornelius did this in Acts for his family and friends in Acts 10. Compassion should move us to seek to involve others in saving the lost as well by praying that the Lord will send more laborers. Matthew, according to Matthew 9, 38, said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. This is something that everyone can do. Even if you can't yet teach, you can pray. Second Thessalonians 3 and 1 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Compassion should move us to send out others to teach. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7, it says, These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, not into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did more than just teach and pray. He trained and sent out his disciples as well. And we can be involved with sending out others also. We can encourage the training of those that are willing to teach. And also we can support financially those who go out to teach. Philippians 4, verses 15 and 16, it says there, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me, as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Third John 5 through 8, it says there, <clears throat> Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. And if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that is for his name's sake, they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Without compassion for the lost this morning, there is no motivation. We may have the knowledge and the opportunity to teach others, but with no motivation, nothing will get done. Is that what we have been doing regarding evangelism today? Could it be that we're lacking the motivation that's necessary for evangelism? With compassion for the lost, we won't rest until we're doing something. It may not be the same thing as what others are doing, but it will be something. If we don't know how or what to do, compassion will motivate us to keep looking, to keep studying, until we find something that we can do. I hope that we can all have the attitude of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, it says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.